Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Welcome to CBC this morning, everybody. Today is a good day. Today we wrap up our spring series. It has been eight and nine weeks in two chapters, lightning speed here. We run at CBC in Matthew eight and nine. And really, if you look back through what we've talked about, it's all about this theme of Jesus's kingdom. And not just how it sounds different when he teaches about it, but literally as he walks, how it changes the world around him. It's about the difference living in the reality the kingdom of God brings to our day to day. And when we come here on Sunday morning, that's exactly what we celebrate. That's exactly what we're called to do. And one of the ways we do it is we begin each sermon by praying because we live in an overly critical culture. We live in a culture where we're geared to look for what's wrong instead of what's right. We live in a culture where we feel better by tearing down others. And Jesus says, my kingdom is different. And so we believe that God has brought us here together for a purpose. We believe that this isn't an accident. We believe that God's word is living and active. And as we read it together, as we see a fuller picture of who God is, we know that he's teaching us this morning. And so we're going to start today by just praying, praying that God allows us to push past the cultural critical spirit that we have into a place where we can contribute to the conversation of faith. We started this morning by asking the simple question, what is God saying to me? What is the Holy Spirit trying to teach my spirit this morning? So I'm going to lead us in a prayer and I'm going to ask that you spend a few seconds and pray silently to yourself that God might teach us this morning. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be in a place that reminds me what true value is, that pushes back the cultural narrative of what's important or how we should act towards one another and and asks us to be different because Jesus was different. That asks us to live in a way that reflects values that are just better because they're God's values that we were created to live in and to live through um, us and our friends and our families in this world. I pray today as we open some scripture, Holy Spirit, teach us guide us and lead us, and may we see more of you. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take the next few seconds and just simply pray, and ask that the Holy Spirit might lead and guide and teach your spirit this morning. I'd ask that you pray for me, that God might use my preparation to supernaturally show you more of who he is and why he's worthy of our worship. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. If you've got a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to wrap up this section of Scripture this morning. And as we look at where the Scripture points us towards, it also points us backward. Because we've been in this section of Scripture where Jesus is doing 10 miracles in two chapters. And what we're really going to look at is the motivation behind his action a little bit. Because here's the deal. There are two kinds of people. 
they're the kinds of people, I lived with this guy in college. He's on my floor, his name is David. And I remember him because his, his action towards school was very different than mine. I remember the first time I met him, I said, what are you doing tonight? It's the first couple days of school, which in my book meant you didn't have to start working yet. And he said, I'm working on this paper. I said, when's it due? He said, three weeks from now. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I work on a calendar that's three weeks ahead of the actual calendar. So things that are due in three weeks, I get done three Fridays before, if it's due on Friday. And I said, I work on a calendar where if I have five minutes to spare, I did something wrong when I'm doing assignments. There are two kinds of people, kinds of people that are motivated by intrinsic methods just to get stuff done. And me, I am a deadline needing dude. I need deadline. I need people to pressure me because that's how I'm wired. I came across a quote this last week that I loved. This person was talking about parenting. And they said, we should say to our kids, you must be so proud of yourself instead of saying, I'm proud of you because they will grow intrinsically motivated rather, that's not supposed to be a hater, rather than motivated not to please others. And look, I I think you need both. I think kids need to know as parents that you're proud of them. But that struck me as somebody who's always, who's always trying to deliver for other people or because I'm going to be judged or because there are deadlines that Motivation we have matters. It reveals who we are more and more. Motivation all too often reveals why we do what we do. And today we're going to look at a passage that that asks the question, what was Jesus's motives behind things? I remember now that the second kid's going to come hopefully in five or six weeks, pray that there's no earliness. And remember the the first go around with my daughter two and a half years ago. I remember the first day that my mom came to watch my kid and I went to work. I remember thinking, man, my mom really loves me. That's so nice that she would do that for me. And I thought about it this week because I found a study from BYU that talked about the dynamic between grandparents and grandchildren. And it said that 72% of grandparents think the single most important and satisfying thing in their life is being a grandparent. And I picked up my kid that day from my mom And she came to the door and I said, thank you so much for doing this. And she said, this was probably the greatest day of my life. And I said, mom, we've had a lot of days together. That's kind of insulting when you think about it. But she was right. Her motivation had nothing to do with me. And as a middle child, I always think it does. It had everything to do with my kiddo. Motivation matters. It reveals your heart. And so today, when we look at Jesus, we see the motivation behind all the things Because in the last two chapters, he has cleansed a leper that nobody would touch by touching him. He has risen a servant from the Gentile tribe. He's healed a mother-in-law. He has literally calmed a storm and he's cast out demons. He has made dead people alive and he's healed people that have been sick for years and years and years. He's doing all these things. But here's the deal. If we only focus on the what and forget the why, we've missed the purpose of what Jesus did as the church that follows Jesus. And so today we get into the why. It starts in chapter 9, and it begins like this. As Jesus went from there, two blind men began following him, shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he went to the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said, do you believe I'm able to do this? And we get into the heart of the matter. Jesus is answering the question, this is why I did what I did. But you have to know something before you get into this passage. That the best arguments that we find in life, the most compelling cases that we usually fall behind aren't just rational, they're emotional. It pulls it just out, not just our physical, but our emotional. It gets at the whole person. And I know that to be true. 
because Christmas commercials are getting more and more emotional for me every single year. There was a Dutch commercial this last year. I don't know if you saw it. It went viral. And, and it wasn't even, there was no words. And I saw it and it was this, this old man. And he wakes up in bed one morning and it's clearly not winter. And he gets out and he's frail. And then he goes to his shed and he uncovers a bunch of boxes and he dusts off this kettlebell. And he just starts to try and pick it up on a chair. He can't, can't even move it. And, and the commercial is two and a half minutes long of him just trying more and more every day to work out to pick up this kettlebell. Just a squat and a pickup. And his neighbors look at him and they think he's weird. And everybody's like, what is this guy doing? And he's living alone. And then fast forward to Christmas the next year. And his granddaughter runs up to him with a star in, his hand, in her hand. And he picks up his granddaughter like a kettlebell and holds her all the way to the top of the tree so she can put the star on the tree. And it pans to his daughter who's crying. And if it panned to me, I'm fighting back tears. And you know what? Before I had kids and knew about grandparents and how special that was, I would have said, cool, family, 18-year-old Charlie, right? 37-year-old Charlie with all this in play is fighting back tears, saying, like, why are you crying? I'm not crying. It's fine. It's hot in here. I'm sweating through my eyes. (laughs) The best arguments hit us not just rationally. They hit us emotionally. We see both those today. So Jesus starts by saying, in the last two miracles that we see, there are two blind men. And what Matthew's doing as he, as he goes through this text, he's building the case for Jesus. And if you remember last week, we stopped with a 12-year-old girl who was dead that Jesus made alive. That's pretty powerful. You might say, hey, there's no greater miracle than bringing not just an adult, but a kid back to life, because it's way more tragic to lose a kid than an adult in many cases. And so he heals this little girl. So then he goes on and he, he, he finds these two blind people. But let me tell you, in the first century world, the world that Jesus is walking and talking in, there was actually a miracle that was more rare than being risen from the dead. It's making blind people see. In the Old Testament, there are three examples we have. Three of people being risen from the dead. In the Old Testament, there's not one example we have of somebody who was blind that saw. In the New Testament, we have no examples of people being risen from the dead um, or people being, being given sight after Jesus, and it's the most prominent miracle he does throughout his Gospels. And let me show you why. Because giving sight to the blind was seen as the work of God. John 9 says this. In a narrative that talks about giving sight to the blind, Jesus restores this man's sight who was blind from birth, and they said to him, who gave, never before has anyone done this by giving sight or, or giving, opening the eyes of a blind man. If this man were not from God, no one could do such a thing. That's the ingrained nature of the people. They said, you can raise people from the dead, but nobody but God can give sight to the blind. Exodus 4, God's talking about himself, and he says, who gave a mouth to the man or who makes a person mute? or deaf, or seeing to the blind, it is not I, the Lord. In Psalm 146, the writer says, the Lord gives sight to the blind. So you might say, Charlie, there's no greater miracle than raising people from the dead, not in our world, but in in their world. Giving sight to the blind was a better claim towards deity than anything else. And Jesus is the only one who did it. So these men come to Jesus, and they say to him, Please have mercy on a son of David. Can you give us sight? And he said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And when he's asking that, he's literally asking them, do you believe that I am Lord? Big statement there. And he continues, and he said, they said to him, yes, Lord, verse 29. Then he touched their eyes and he said, let it be done for you according to your faith. 
and their eyes were opened. So, so Jesus is making the case for his kingdom. He's making the case for why he did what he did. And there's two answers to the why. One is because he's God. Why did Jesus heal people? Because that's what God does. He is literally God. And he's making the case that nobody can deny that he's different than everybody else. That he's different than all the Old Testament prophets that he's different than the disciples going forward, that he's different than the first century church, that he's different because he's not just a man that brings God's goodness. He is literally the presence of God's goodness encapsulated in a man. And there is a distinct difference between that he's making the case for his deity. That's why the very next story that follows, if you keep reading, is a demon-possessed man as they were going away. A demon-possessed man was unable to speak and brought to him. After the demon was cast out, and the man had, had begun to speak, the crowds were amazed. And they said, never has anything like this been seen here in Israel. And, and so what we see is that he's making his case, Matthew is, for his deity. And then he's saying, and by the way, he's in control of everything. And when you look at the big picture of Matthew 8 and 9, what you begin to see is the power of Jesus over all things because it starts with a leper and some diseases and some death, and then it moves into the natural and the metaphysical world, and then it moves from there into more power over the demonic. What we see when we look at all of this as a whole is God's ability to have authority over everything. Everything. You couldn't read this text and say, yeah, but he didn't deal with this kind of thing. I don't think he has power over X, Y, and Z. Matthew's making the case that Jesus has absolute authority over all the areas of your life, all the things that might afflict you, all the things that might harm you, all the things that might bring you pain. Jesus is God. But I, I don't think you came here this morning to hear the message or the revelation or the aha moment that Jesus is Lord. If you did, that's awesome. The win is over. Turn off your TV. You can walk out now and go with that, right? For most of us, we came here because we believed that. That's why the next sentence is so telling for me. So he's proving his deity through doing things only God could do. And the Pharisees look at him right there and they say, by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. What a phrase. Here's what that does. As a people, we've, been away, we, we, we've always found a way to explain a way what we don't believe in and explain what we do believe in. And this is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus does. You see the outworkings of God in the world and you either say God is good or you find another thing to say is good or bad. The Pharisees wanted no part of this. The crowds wanted all the part of this. And you see by nature what it does. It naturally divides people because they didn't want to believe it. So the question becomes, kind of what we talked about last week, what lenses do we look at the world through? How do we see God acting in our world? Because let me tell you something. He always is. Always. The Pharisees here literally see God acting in ways that I've never seen before. And they say, this can't be God because I, I don't want it to be the question is, how do you see God acting? And in a year like last year, we need to put those lenses on even more and say, no, no I, I refuse to believe that God wasn't present because that's not who he is. I refuse to believe that God wasn't near because that's not who he is. I refuse to believe that God wasn't healing because that's not who he is. There's a, a pretty heavy hitter in the Jesus world named Russell Moore. And he's a blogger and an author and a writer, deals with the uh, Southern Baptists quite a bit. And somebody forwarded me an email that he wrote this week. It was really good. It was really good. He had a rough year. 
He came out with some not-so-popular opinions on a couple things, and a lot of his base kind of turned on him a little bit amongst all the other 2020 stuff. And so he writes this blog post, and he said, I had a hard year. He said, I took an unpopular opinion and made it known because that's my world that I live in. And he said, a lot of the people that said they were for me turned against me. A lot of the people that believed in my potential went silent. And he said, there's this woman, Beth Moore, who I met and I've known about but didn't know. And she's had a tough year too in a lot of circles. And he said, you know, people said we wouldn't be friends and people said we shouldn't be friends and people said things about her and about me. And what I realized over the years, over this year, was that when all of the people that said they were my friends in my theological circles went dark to see how people would respond to me, she was the one that kept calling. She was the one that kept praying. She was the one that asked who I was. He says, do we believe different things about something? Sure. But I haven't experienced love and grace from many people like I have from this woman. And he goes on to say, I love this quote. He goes on to say, about 2020, I would never ever want to repent or repeat this year, but I also would never want to give it up and give up the grace I've seen in the midst of it. He's looking at the last year through the lens of a God who delivers, who's near, and who heals. And so the first thing we see when we look at Jesus is he's walking and talking and saying, big picture, do you not want to know why I did these things? I'm proving to you I'm God. That's the answer we give our kids in Sunday school. Why did Jesus heal? Because he could. Why did Jesus heal? Because he's bigger. Why did Jesus heal? Because he's always going to deliver in this life or the next. Why did Jesus heal? Because God cares about you. This is the Sunday school answer about the authority and the divinity of Jesus. This is what he's doing when he's doing miracles. He had three chapters of the best sermon we've ever heard, and then he walked it out in real life. But he goes on from there in the next text. He moves from the rational to the emotional, he continued. Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and sicknesses. Just as a brief aside, when Matthew defines the gospel, it's usually in these three buckets of preaching, teaching, and healing mostly so that they didn't fall into the trap that sometimes we do, that the gospel is just words on a page or just a decision that you make one day at, at youth camp, you know? The gospel is so much fuller and richer and touches all parts of who we are, mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually. It brings healing and comfort in the middle of the hard parts. And so he says he goes around and he heals and he teaches and he preaches all throughout the land. And the verbiage there in the original language is ongoing. It means that it never stopped. This was a way of life for Jesus. So just know that we see 10 miracles in these two chapters, but there was way more than that because this is who God is. And Matthew continues, and we get into the second why. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That word compassion in the Greek is only used in the gospels to refer to Jesus. Jesus uses it a couple times to talk in parables, but it's only used when it's God's action towards his people, when it's Jesus acting towards his people. It's two different words mashed together that literally means bowels of mercy. So what it actually means is I, I'm looking at you and I am so moved by loss for you. I am so moved by compassion for you that I cannot help. I cannot help with everything inside of me to move towards you and help. One author defines it like this. Compassion is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to a person whose life has been broken by sin. I lived for a few months in Guatemala. There's this woman there. Her name is Lori Nee, and she started to school. 
And she went down there when she was in her 20s, I believe. If you haven't been, Guatemala is really poor. It's the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And especially when you get out of the city, which this was, there's just not a lot of resources, not a lot of ways to make money. And she saw the abject poverty of this culture, and she saw kids that didn't have clothes or food or didn't know how to learn, and she started to school. And she said, I couldn't stop. And it started with a couple kids in a couple classrooms, and now it is <laughs> pretty large and has a waiting list to get in. I went down there, and one week, there was a medical clinic. So I'm working at the school, teaching them the seven words I knew in Spanish over and over and over again. Great education. And, and these doctors showed up, about 100 of them. And before the doctors showed up, there was a week that we promoted this medical clinic. It had been happening for years. People started lining up down the street days in advance, days in advance. They'd bring their families, they'd bring their loved ones, and they would wait. And I asked her, I said, why are these people waiting? And they said, because this is the only time they see a doctor all year long, from kids to their parents to their grandparents. And then I talked to the doctors about why they kept coming back, because they didn't get paid. They, they took their vacation days to come to this thing. And they said, because when you come down here and you see the needs of these people, you can't help but come back year after year after year. When Jesus saw the people, it says that he had compassion on them. It means that he literally couldn't stop. He couldn't help but stop and help. And this is why the next phrase, because they were bewildered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Different versions of the scriptures translate that phrase different ways. Some say that they were worried and helpless. Some say they were harassed and helpless or distressed and downcast. I think my favorite is that they were harassed and cast down. But regardless of, they were bewildered or they were harassed, they were taken advantage of, and then they were thrown aside like sheep without a shepherd. That's a common narrative in the Gospels, in all the scriptures, is that God's a shepherd and we are sheep for a lot of reasons. But but here's the biggest one, because sheep are pretty helpless. They are. Sheep can die while drinking water just because they drown themselves while doing it. Sheep can die because they keep walking and they don't rest. That's why in Psalm 23, when he says, I'm going to make you lie down, you had to make them lie down. Sheep can die because they don't understand what's going around them or because their eyesight is so bad they literally can't see right in front of them. Sheep are a pretty helpless creature and they really have no other defense outside of, feel my wool, it's so soft, you know? When God talks about his people, he doesn't talk about his people in ways that make them feel shameful all the time. It's more, I feel so badly for how broken they are. I can't help but help, bewildered and tossed aside. He says, my compassion welled up inside of me and I could do nothing but help these people. It's what Lori did in Guatemala. And here's something you have to know, is when we talk about what motivates God, When we talk about what motivates God to act, it's very different than the society we live in where we motivate things by our actions. When we talk about God's actions, it's always because he had compassion. In Exodus 34, it's it's when the Jewish people are coming out of Egypt. And make no mistake about it, God is introducing himself to his people again. 
He, he takes them to a mountain and they camp out for a year and he says, I'm going to let you know who I am all over again because it's been 400 years and you don't really know me. Moses gets up on the mountain. God's saying, this is my values. Here's some stone tablets. Here's a bunch of other laws. This reflects my goodness and my holiness and my desire for you to live in harmony with my goodness. And Moses asked, who is God? And in Exodus 34, God says, this is who I am. Let me tell you who I am. And God says to Moses, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In 1 John, it says that God literally defines love. When we see the character of God, we can't help but see the compassion that motivates his action. Every time. Every time we see God act, it's because and motivated out of a deep desire to love. It's how and why God acts but it's also who God is. So, let me ask you a question. Um, what was Jesus's name before the incarnation? You thought about that? What was Jesus's name before he became Jesus? Let me put it that way. In my phone right now, I have an app called The Bump, and it tells me every week what fruit my child is that's gonna be born in a couple weeks. And, and my kid's name in that, because we haven't picked one, is Kiddo2, right? That's all I got. That's the most creative I can get because we haven't given him a name yet. Here's the deal. My kid's existence had a starting point. Jesus's doesn't, but his, his physical existence and his name had a starting point. What we're talking about here is this theological construct called the eternality of the son or the eternal sonship of Jesus. What that means is that in all the scriptures, before Jesus became Jesus, he was always known as the son of a loving father. It's not just how he acts, it's literally what defines Jesus is the context of love and relationship to the Father and the Spirit. So when we talk about what motivates Jesus, we have to realize that, that compassion is the catalyst for Jesus' actions, not just because he's a loving God, but literally because he's defined in the context of a loving relationship with the Father. It is who he fundamentally is. So why is Jesus healing all these people? Why is he going around bringing sight to blind people and healing dead little girls? He's doing it because he has such compassion on his people that are hurting. It's because he first loved us. And that, that's a game changer. Because so often it's easy to slip back into this mindset and this mantra that God loves me because I did something. And he says, I, I see how broken you are and I can't help but step into your pain and try and alleviate it. And so he says to his disciples in the next sentence, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest ready fields. Jesus looks at the landscape of humanity and he sees brokenness and he can't help but act. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, we need more of this. Compassion is the catalyst for Jesus's actions. And he looks at his disciples and he said, there's not enough of you that feel the way I feel about the people in this place. And, and part of it just frankly was because the Jewish people didn't fully yet grasp that their goal and their mission and their mindset wasn't just their community or their tribe or the people that looked like them. It was all God's people, you know? It, it's the idea that the exclusivity of Jesus also comes with radical inclusivity, that all call Jesus Lord and there is nothing that separates one person from another in our pursuit and need of Jesus. We all need the same amount of Jesus. No matter where you come from, what your background is, the sins you've committed, or the color of your skin, we all need the same amount of 
Jesus. And so he says, there, there are people that are broken. There's not enough compassion in my people to help show them that I love them. It's a hard sentence. So what I want to do in the next 10 or so minutes is really just talk about why. Because I don't think it's a problem that, that just happened then, and I don't think we fixed it now. I don't think if Jesus came back and be like, guys, the disciples didn't have that compassion, you guys are good. We got more workers than we need to. Take a five-minute breather. You know what I'm saying? I don't think that's what God is telling his people now. So I want to ask the question, if this verse is true for us like it was for them, why? Why is there an abundance of harvest and not an abundance of harvesters? What is going on in the world, in our world that causes us not to, like Jesus, have enough compassion to be a catalyst for our action towards people that need Jesus. So I think there's a couple different things here that we see that, that they saw in the first century world. I think, first of all, um, in their world as well, Roman world ruled things, justice was big. I think just the same as today that essentially compassion is not, it is not the currency of our culture right now. It's just not. I read a book this week. It was a fantastic book on mercy called The God Impulse. And, and in the book, the author cites a stat that kind of blew me away. He, he says that in our country right now, we have just over 1.1 million lawyers for about 300 million people. That means we have one lawyer for every 300 people. That is the most per capita by far in the world. We like to litigate. We like justice. Oftentimes, we have to realize that compassion and justice sometimes are oil and water because compassion doesn't have to make sense to be good. It's the idea that Jesus says that compassionate people love because they see the brokenness in others. Our society is one that's not built on compassion. It's built on justice and discipline. It's, it's, it's by and large why we live in a cancel culture now, because you deserve what happened to you when you did X, Y, or Z and messed up. There was an article this week in the Atlantic. And the headline of the article was, America has lost or America has forgotten how to forgive. This is not Jesus, people. Forgiveness is not a value of people that don't follow Jesus as much as it should be with the people that follow Jesus. And this non-Jesus following group said, we have lost our ability to forgive and it's to our own detriment. And it talks about cancel culture and it talks about the idea that you do one thing wrong and you can do no things right after that and that you're held accountable for everything you've done when you're 17, I pray and hope not, looking backwards in the rear view, you know? And Jesus says that in my kingdom, compassion is the currency. We live in a culture that compassion is not the currency anymore. Because let me tell you something. Compassion and cancel culture don't go together. Forgiveness and cancel culture do not go together. And you might look at me and say, hey, yeah, that's all the liberals and that's all the people that don't know Jesus. Man, the church has been so interwoven in cancel culture politics, I can't even know where to begin. There's a pastor several years ago who started a list of organizations. And if somebody said to you, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, we canceled them. We didn't go there anymore, right? We cancel things just as easily as everybody else. The difference is we find justification for ours. I'm sitting here telling you the currency we carry in our culture is justice, not compassion. Jesus says there's not enough workers because you don't value compassion like my kingdom does. We have to ask ourselves, what is our currency towards my friend and my neighbor and my wife and my kid and fill in the blank? So one is we, we don't value it like Jesus did. I love what Tim Keller says in his book on mercy. He said that our aid is called mercy, not reward. I got a statement that challenges me sometimes when I want people to pay for what they've done to hurt me. And that's hard. 
And so we don't value compassion because it's not something our society values. Um, I also think that we don't value compassion in so many different ways because we, we care for other things more than we care for compassion. And that's a hard one. Because you can be compassionate and not compassionate at the same time. I know that sounds weird. In the book that I referenced earlier, The God Impulse, he talks about the phrase, we've outsourced mercy or we've outsourced compassion. He quotes a stat and he said, in 2016, we gave $390 billion to nonprofits as Americans. But also, more than 62.6 donated their time. That $390 billion was the most we've ever given to nonprofits. That 62.6 donated time hours was a decade-long decline. He said that more people are giving and less people are showing up. And so the question is not, are we compassionate? The question is, we're compassionate if it doesn't come at the cost of our convenience. And and it seems like Jesus said that my compassion is going to inconvenience me more than it conveniences me. And look, please hear me. I'm not saying giving money's bad. I'm not saying any, I'm simply saying we have to ask the question, what is our compassion motivating us to do? The word itself paints this picture of you changing your posture towards another's posture so that you can bend down and help. There's a quote, it's a long quote. I'm gonna read it. I'm just getting your expectations ready, everybody. It's by uh, uh, an author I really love. And I've, I've used this before, but it's, it might be my favorite quote of all time, which is saying something. And this man, this pastor, he writes it, and he says, more and more, the desire grows in me simply to walk around, to greet people, to enter their homes, to sit on their doorsteps, to play ball, to throw water, and to be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have the time to practice this simple ministry of presence. Still, it's not the same and as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, to be a part of something impressive, is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings and conferences and study groups and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It's difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you're working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories, and to tell them your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs. They don't simply like them, but you truly love them. The simple ministry and power of presence is oftentimes the most primary way we can show compassion because that's how Jesus shows it to us. It's this idea that, that if we're gonna be workers in a field and harvest what God has done, we have to see people as broken. We have to care in the currency of trade and the currency of compassion. We have to know what compassion is gonna cost us, most likely our convenience from time to time. And that's okay. We need to start celebrating those things because they're good, because it's what Jesus did for you and me. And then finally, I think sometimes this is the most extreme. We don't show compassion simply because because there are times that I don't think people are deserving of it, you know? There are some people that I look at and I say, yeah, that is too far gone, that is too much, that is too, that is too, that is too, that is too. And you realize pretty quickly that if you view people as outkick the coverage of God's compassion, you get your theology all wrong. There's a book called Justice for All. It's one of my favorite books. And a guy named John Perkins, who's a pastor and a civil rights activist, he, he wrote it. And in it, he tells a story. I'm going to sum up a whole chapter here. But in it, he tells a story about how one night he got arrested by the police in the Deep South in 1970. And... 
for the whole night, they just beat him up. <laughs> he said they beat him and they beat him and they stuck forks up his nose and they did awful things. And the only reason they stopped was because they thought he was dead. He said, in the middle of that, I looked up these police officers that were beating me and I saw just the viciousness behind their eyes. What, he said, I think he said, what looks like demonic forces that drove them. And he said, I realized that these people, and this is powerful, these people weren't my enemies. They were captives by the same thing that Jesus delivered me from. And he said, once I started seeing them as captives, it gave me the space to have compassion for them. And he said, that night in that jail cell, I prayed, God, if you let me live, I'm going to preach a gospel that extends beyond just my people, but to white people. And he said, that's what I've been doing ever since. Jesus saw the people that hurt him the most as captives towards sin, not his enemies. That's why in two weeks, we're going to tell the story of the upper room where he looks at Judas, the one that was going to betray him. He says, go and do it now. And then he still walks to the cross. This week, one article I read had this line that blew me away. Talked about the, the nature of seeing others in our world as captives, as lost sheep, as people that need God. And it talks about the idea of who Paul was. And it said, the apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's just how the gospel works. If we see others as captives to the same sin that God delivered us from, it gives us the space to find compassion where we couldn't before. Because that's how Jesus saw us. It gives us the space to live and walk in the same compassion that Jesus did for others. And so really the question this morning <laughs> is it seemed like the catalyst for God to do what he did was his deity rooted in this underlying compassion. What is our compassion causing us to do? Because he said, there are so many people that are broken I need some help showing some compassion to those who need me the most. And what we see after this in Matthew, to broaden back out again, we see the next two chapters being Jesus sending his disciples into the world. So what we see big picture is that the compassion of God didn't stop when God stopped living on earth. The compassion of God spread through the people of God. He says, this is my kingdom, one that delivers. This message we've been saying for the last two months, this is my kingdom, one that extends far beyond me, but keeps on going because my presence is with my people. And we see this big picture that the kingdom doesn't end with Jesus. It continues through us. And his compassion towards us is a catalyst for our compassion towards others. That's a kingdom that delivers. One that tells the stories that God is good and God is healing and God is near, not because you've earned it and not because he is all about himself, even though God is in some theological ways. It tells the story of a God who drew near because his love required nothing less than drawing near, of a God who walked for 30 years in the pain of people before he delivered people, of a God who showed up and said, I can't help but heal people because this is what compassion motivates, requires me to do. Why did Jesus do what he did? Because his love required nothing less. I love that. Because our motivation reveals why we do what we do. And so often that why is so much bigger than the what. The 10 miracles are fantastic. I'll take one any day of the week. But I love that he did it because he's saying, you're my people and you're broken and you need help. That's the gospel to a hurting and broken world. You're God's people and he loves you and you need help. Let's look at Jesus. And so he says, I need more workers. And he calls us to pick up the task where he left it. It's a beautiful picture of what his kingdom would be. 
And so I'd say this week, as we think about the compassion of God, I wouldn't focus on the big picture of how we change the world tomorrow. I'd simply ask to keep with the, the narrative here, where's your field, you know? <laughs> where's your field? What does compassion require of you to do this week? Where are you bending down to show somebody that God bent down for them? What does that look like? I've seen that done in so many ways, you know? I've seen it done by people making meals. One friend of mine said every Thursday, this is back in college, that he just simply took in the garbage cans of the people that lived next to him. Never said a word about it. Just did it every single week. I love that. It was so simple. Just the idea that I'm going to go out of my way to show you that Jesus went out of his way for you. So what's motivating our compassion? What's our compassion welling up in us this week? And if you can't find one example, I'd simply say press into what God did for you and that will overflow into the lives of those around you. That's our motivation. It's not to make God happy or to be better looking Christians. It's because we understand the depths of God's compassion as his catalyst towards us. Two, a very real easy application. In our text, he says, hey, pray that God raises up a bunch of harvesters. So maybe you don't know how to act. I'd simply pray. Pray that God raises up this week, every day. Spend five minutes and pray that God raises up people to show other people that Jesus is reaching down towards them. And let me tell you something. If you pray that prayer, you know what happens when you pray things about other people? God will get you, you know? It's the idea that if you pray that God raises up harvesters, I'm willing to bet that he'll show you places where you can be compassionate towards others in your world as well. And may that be our prayer. May that be our prayer. It's a good thing that we celebrate. Because that's what we're going to do in a couple weeks is celebrate the biggest act of compassion ever made in the history of this world. Because I truly believe that, that compassion can change the world that we live in. There's a story I read about a man named Wells Crowther who, when he grew up, his dad was kind of a mentor in his life. And when he was six years old, his dad gave him two handkerchiefs, a white one and he gave him a red one. And he said, hey, Wells, the white one's for show. It goes in your pocket. The red one's for blow. You can fill in the blanks there, right? He said, the red one is what you use to clean up messes and to blow your nose and to get dirty. The white one is the one that's there on you all the time. He wore that red bandana when he was 16 and he volunteered at a fire station. He wore that red bandana under his helmet when he played lacrosse for Boston College. He wore that red bandana when he was working in one of the towers on 9-11. And the story is pretty amazing that I ran across. The, the plane hit one of the towers and some people brought him down to some firefighters. He was on floor 104. Firefighters that were on floor 61. If you made it there, you made it out. He said when everybody else went out of the building, he put on that red bandana and he kept running up the stairs and finding more people. He found people who were hurt. He found people who couldn't walk and he'd carry them down the stairs to the firefighters so they could get out. One of them was named Judy Wynn. He said that he found me and I had a broken arm and a punctured lung and some cracked ribs. And he, and he, and he sent me down to the firefighters on floor 61. And she said, I never saw him again. And they, they actually found him about a month later laying next to some other firefighters who died in the rubble. But she went on to CNN and she said, quote, to CNN, she said, people can live 100 years and not have the compassion to do what he did. She said, he still is with me and she carries a picture of him with her in her apartment. But the legacy of this dude that showed monumental compassion on people went well beyond just that time and place. His bandana right now is in the 9-11 Museum in Washington, D.C. 
But it goes beyond that. He had a friend, Tyler Jewell, who was a snowboarder, and he wore a red bandana when he competed in the 2006 Olympics. And then beyond that, there's an ESPN writer named Tom Rinaldi who wrote a book in 2016 called The Red Bandana. The idea is pretty simple. If, if you don't think compassion can change the world, then let me tell you a story I have to tell you. I'm going to tell you in two weeks on Easter because it's all that has. And that's what we celebrate is the ability for this compassion that motivates our action to oftentimes be inconvenienced and not make sense in a world that doesn't value compassion but values justice. This is the stuff that changes people. Sure, Jesus is God. Absolutely. You need to know that. But I need to show it to you as well because that's when we find those arguments that do more than just convince us. They change us. And so we read through 10 miracles of Jesus over the last two months. But you need to know why. Not just because he could, because he wanted to. Not just because he could, because he had to. And as the people of God, we get to carry on the legacy of Jesus' compassion. He says, the fields are ready, but the workers are few. Might we be a people who work out the compassion of Jesus in a world that needs to see it? Let me pray for us.